If you follow the news, you're probably very familiar with the extended drama that enveloped the European Union this summer over Greece's inability to pay off its debt obligations. After some brinksmanship from both Athens and its creditors in the Eurozone and at the IMF, Greece was eventually able to secure a bailout and avoid the messy business of becoming the first country ever to break off the European Union. While Greece's debt obligations are significant, it's certainly not the first country to experience debt crises. In fact, many countries with economies large and small have gone through the same situation over the last century. For many of those in the European Union who question whether it's worth offering Greece a lifeline at all, perhaps history could offer some guidance on the matter. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. You can also find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. Today we're joined by HKS Professor Carmen Reinhardt, an expert on international finance and trade, who's a member of both the Congressional Budget Office's Panel of Economic Advisors and the Council on Foreign Relations. She's also the author of This Time is Different, Eight Centuries of Financial Folly. Professor Reinhardt, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you've just written a working paper with Christopher Trebesch uh, of the University of Munich, examining 48 cases of sovereign debt relief over the last century or so, post-World War I. Um, what made you pursue this kind of historical analysis? Well, I've had a long trajectory uh, of work on financial crises, and part of the financial crises analysis is, of course, sovereign debt crises. Uh, a lot of the work that I've done over the past few years with Ken Rogoff has focused on documenting the incidents of sovereign debt crises, whether these are outright defaults or whether they're restructurings, whatever. Um, and the paper with Christoph Trebisch uh, complements that kind of analysis by looking at the magnitudes. So, for example, to say that we had a restructuring a debt crisis in Uruguay in 2003-2004 and that we have now in Greece um, doesn't really say any says something about the incidents, but it doesn't say how big they were, how you know, and the the sheer size relative to the economy, mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's a big topic because many uh, advanced economies and increasingly there are concerns about emerging markets as well have very high levels of debt. So our study is one page in a big book on how uh, high levels of debt are dealt with uh, through history. So there's a central question that you set to answer in some form, which is, uh, should countries with a heavy debt burden uh, and little prospect of re repayment receive debt forgiveness? It, do you think you found an answer to that? Well, uh, look, for years now, uh, as I said with earlier work with Ken Rogoff, we have been making the point, and also work with um, uh, my husband, Vincent Reinhardt, we've been making the point that the whole approach towards debt reduction uh, has been uh, somewhat uh, limited in scope by thinking that countries with high debt burdens have exclusively relied on fiscal austerity or literally prayed for economic growth to get them out of the 
uh, dead overhang. Uh, and what our work, including this this work with uh, Christoph Trevish, highlights is that the menu that countries have resorted to has been a lot richer and that debt forgiveness, debt restructurings, write-offs, um, interest rate reductions, uh, repayment uh, holidays or, or um, grace periods have all been part of the solution uh, to dead overhangs. And the important point also that Christoph and I make in this paper is, look, uh, in recent years, the tendency has been by especially policymakers in Europe to say, well, no, 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 that's how emerging markets dealt with the situation, not advanced economies. And what we do in this paper is remind uh, everyone that, look, after World War I, the advanced economies had major debt overhangs, largely owing to World War I, Reconstruction, the Depression, combination of these factors. And that large-scale debt forgiveness was part of the deal mm -hmm. in, in bringing that uh, to a closure, bringing that episode to a closure. Are there countries that can serve as kind of a control to these countries that have received some form of debt restructuring or whatever it is that can serve as an, an example? That is, countries that have never had a debt crisis uh, of one form or another. There are relatively few Mm -hmm. uh, on that list, because let me just say something uh, about both our paper, uh, the paper with Christoph, and the issue more generally. Debt crises come in different varieties. They can be uh, triggered by uh, external debt, or they can be triggered by problems with domestic debt. Uh, or both. Greece now currently has both. It's mm -hmm. both a domestic debt issue and external debt issue. And very few countries have avoided both. Mm -hmm. So you actually have countries that, for example, like Thailand in the emerging markets or Malaysia that have come close to a debt crisis. We saw that in the 1997-1998 crisis, but really haven't had an outright debt crisis. They haven't restructured their debts. They haven't had significant domestic uh, debt crises either. Mm -hmm. You have Switzerland, uh, which also has a very uh, uh, debt crisis-free uh, record. Uh, Canada has no uh, sovereign, uh, uh, not a history of sovereign uh, debt problems. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in uh, the 1930s, some of the provinces did have uh, problems. The U.S., for example, has had um, historically uh, the abrogation of the gold clause, namely when the U.S. Uh, took off the uh, clause that said this U.S. bond is payable in gold um, was, you know, a, a breach of a contract, so it's right. considered. A, but most countries and some more than others, Greece is in a leading example of that, have had uh, what Ken Rogoff and I, with Miguel Savastano in the paper in 2003, called the problem of serial default. So you uh, posit that there's really not much difference between a situation like Greece and these emerging markets. Um, is, is it just that the differences scale, or do the responses to this kind of restructuring differ? When uh, debt problems 
are mod of a modest nature. I would say advanced economies because they have simply more resources to bring to bear. They usually have more access to credit, international credit. They, they're not shut out immediately of credit markets like most emerging markets mm -hmm. uh, usually are, have more in their toolkit to deal with a debt problem. But when the debt problems become so large, Greece, for example, debt, depending on how, what, how you measure it, it's not far by any measure from the 200% of GDP uh, mark. Um, when they become that large, uh, debt reduction via haircuts and or other varieties of restructuring have been part and parcel of the solution, whether they're advanced economies or whether they're emerging markets. Mm -hmm. A big, uh, uh, I, I suppose, the most controversial thing about the Greek um, restructuring, or I guess three bailouts that they've received, uh, are the austerity measures that come along with them. The controversy stems from the idea that these these cuts are going to slow down the Greek economy and therefore hamper its ability to repay. Um, when you look historically at countries that have had to go through this process, has that borne out? Is is it possible that they can still generate economic growth despite the cuts? Well, I think the general message is, look, if, if, if you have a debt problem, you're going to face austerity measures, whether you have the IMF, the EU, the League of Nations, your creditors in London, your creditors in New York, or someone, you're going to have to have austerity because what you're trying to do is tighten your belt so that you increase the odds of repayment at some point. You just don't have the resources that you thought you had. So that's part and parcel of the story. The problem, of course, is that in so doing, it it brings down the economy, and uh, for it, and this can go on for a protracted period. Uh, that doesn't usually, on its own, uh, does not usually yield the kind of debt reduction that is intended on its own. That's why coupling uh, the kind of austerity measures with uh, that are usually implemented during debt crises. Mm -hmm. This is not a unique example. Greece is not by any means a unique example. Um, coupling that with debt relief um, and sometimes some inflation financing, which Greece, of course, cannot do in the context of the Eurozone, because inflation is a way of eroding domestic currency debt. Uh, so, you know, this hybrid, more heterodox approach that Ken Rogoff and I uh, and Vincent uh, um, Reinhardt, Ken Rogoff and I stressed also in a very recent HKS working paper mm -hmm. uh, that came out this year also, it has been much more hybrid. Um, so what uh, Christoph and I find is, look, when you're talking about debt relief, roughly speaking, close to 20% of GDP, that's not a trivial contribution uh, to the solution of a problem. And that 20%, of course, there's a huge variability, as we show from one episode to the next, mm -hmm. but that is, is, is by no means trivial. From the debtor's perspective, it seems like this is a tough pill to swallow. From the those who are owed money, uh, what does it take to get them to, to is, is 
this evidence that going in and offering better repayment terms and it ends up being worth it if you take the long view? Well, look, uh, right now, as you know, uh, in the context of the Greek crisis, uh, Germany is often singled out as saying, oh, they're so tough and they don't, you know, they're, they, 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 that's the usual stance creditors take. Uh, U.S. banks uh, in the 1980s when Latin America and other emerging markets were on the debtor side, it was the same story. Mm-hmm. Uh, creditors don't like haircuts. Uh, they want to be repaid in full. I think the realization, unfortunately, takes a long time. This is one of the things Christoph and I document, that from the initial efforts to try to restructure until you reach the final restructuring that really brings about a solution to the debt overhang problem, it often takes years. uh, 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 Almost a decade is not at all unheard of, and it's pretty much close to the norm. And part of the reason it takes so long is that creditors will try and try, no, try this and try that. And sometimes the process of debt relief comes through the process of uh, elimination, that you've tried so many other alternatives that did not work, that in the end you have to face the fact that, well, look, you're, the, 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 the debtors are not as wealthy as you once thought they were, therefore their capacity to repay is not there. Uh, or their capacity to repay in full is not there. and some, But that realization and that back and forth is a very painful process. And the irony of it is that what Christoph and I find in our work, uh, this is ongoing work. It's mm-hmm. not part of this research, but it's we have a very rich project that looks really at 200 years of haircuts. Um, what we find is that the size of the haircut that you need to make things work uh, depends on how long it takes you uh, to get to that point and how much the economy has contracted. Because the longer it takes, the more that the economy contracts because it's undertaking austerity measures, because it doesn't have credit. Um, the, the, the bigger the economic contraction, the longer it takes, the bigger the haircut that you need in the end. So from the creditor vantage point, it's it's all there's also this trade-off between acting tough and trying to get much as much out out of the 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 debtors with the fact that at some point reality has to sink in and if you really uh uh continue to see a, a, a downward spiral in the economy of the debtor countries the prospects for repayment just keep getting worse and worse for emerging markets which don't have access to the kind of bailouts that you know Greece will have access to if having access to that it would change the situation for the better in emerging markets how could that even be achieved i have to say that in one dimension having access is a plus in one dimension, it may be a minus in that it may delay the inevitable. So emerging markets may come to closure and or to the realization that write-offs are necessary sooner rather than later. Um, but the reason I think it, this analysis and this study with uh, uh, Christoph Trebisch is, is an important message, not just for the European situation, but obviously for what is incipient in, in, in the emerging market world right now, a lot of the concerns have reemerged that, especially as the dollar has continued to strengthen, that those dollar debts 
have started to carry a, a bigger and bigger uh, burden on, on the emerging markets. And that's coupled with the fact that commodity prices have declined and slowed down in these countries. So debt burden concerns have resurfaced and are likely to be with us in the coming years uh, on a greater scale than the last decade, because the past decade, between 2003 and 2013, for example, were pretty good years for the emerging market. So I think the concerns that we raise about the need to restructure debts, to restructure them quickly, um, and about the benefits that are associated with getting to a, a meaningful restructuring sooner rather than later, uh, I think those apply, th those, those uh, um, implications of the study are, are relevant to both, as I said, the situation in, in Europe, but also what, it, what we're seeing develop once again uh, in, in emerging markets as the economic uh, downturn has become more serious there. I also wanted to touch on uh, Puerto Rico, which, of course, of is course. is not sovereign. It's a uh, United States. Well, some might call it a colony. Yeah. It has a debt burden of, I think, $70 billion, which is 70% of their GDP. It seems like they're in a really tough bind because, obviously, they don't have control of the money, um, just like Greece. Exactly. Their debt is, is separated across just a tremendous number of debtors in a very mm -hmm. kind of Byzantine system. And uh, they're very much tied to the United States. Yeah. D is it incumbent on the United States to find some way to bail Puerto Rico out, just like the EU has, has bailed out Greece? Uh, look, I think uh, Puerto Rican debt is on the hands of creditors that have enjoyed for a number of years uh high yields relative to other instruments. So, you know, Puerto Rico's debts had high interest rates, in part because they were seen as somewhat riskier, in part because of their tax status. Uh, but the fact is that I think there is a reasonable chance that the uh, creditors in Puerto Rico will move more rapidly uh, to a restructuring situation rather than an extend and pretend because the issues facing Puerto Rico's economy do have actually considerable similarities, as you pointed out, with Greece. They, they cannot print money, so they mm -hmm. cannot uh, inflate away the value of these debts. Um, they have a very high share of their uh, wealth is in New York or in mainland U.S. This is also an issue for Greece, the fact that, you know, there's, there's both capital flight and human capital flight mm -hmm. in both places. Uh, it's been a shrinking economy for, for some time. Um, some of its transfer uh, because of an aging population, uh, because so much of the vibrant or more vibrant uh, population has moved abroad um, is increasingly dependent on on transfers on uh, and so it is a situation that is delaying it delaying the solution is not going to get anyone uh, anywhere and I think I am hopeful that the private creditors as dispersed as they are 
uh, will come to terms with the fact that this is a case where, uh, you know, uh, a haircut, and you will probably, even after the haircut, I would be uh, inclined to say they're probably still going to get pretty good returns uh, on having uh, bought uh, Puerto Rican debt. It seems like the governor forced the issue by bringing Puerto Rico to default, um, perhaps a little sooner than than necessary. That seems like a kind of brinksmanship, but it seems like it might be to the benefit of all involved. It, it, and really, it it actually, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I wouldn't call it brinksmanship in the sense that the, the fundamentals. Um, have been deteriorating at a pretty alarming speed. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, realization that it really, it is, it is the, the, the island doesn't have the resources to continue to service its very high debt burden mm-hmm. uh, without it beginning to erode away some really basic, uh, you know, it's a tough call because you're, you're going to close down schools to, to service your debt. Uh, you know, so, so, so it brought out a very stark fact that the debt sustainability analysis wasn't adding up. When we look at Greece and, and Puerto Rico, obviously they can't rely on printing money. They can't rely on inflation to get out of it. Could they possibly serve as examples that inflation may not be the best way for countries in this situation, even if they have that tool in their toolbox, um, to get up? Is it possible that debt restructuring and, and haircuts and all of the all of those tools might be better in the long term than inflating away the, the debt? Everything is a matter of degree. Uh, it's one thing to say, okay, I am going to uh, allow monetary conditions to get so out of control that you wind up in a state like Venezuela is right now. Right, Venezuela hasn't published its inflation numbers this year. Estimates are that it's running around 200%, maybe higher. Uh, y- y- so when you're talking about inflating debt through those extreme uh, circumstances, that's extremely damaging for the economy. It's regressionary. It's a, inflation is a regressionary tax because the average wage earner sees their real wage decline. The wealthier uh, uh, citizens can go and put their deposits somewhere else uh, so that they're not hit by the inflation tax. Um, so it's a matter of degree, right? Now, a little inflation, you know, three percent, four percent over extended periods of time that helps you erode debt gradually is not something to be scoffed at either. I've done work basically suggesting that, not suggesting, but basically presenting the evidence that after World War II, uh, that kind of modest but steady dose of inflation with low international interest rates, low domestic interest rates, negative, real inflation-adjusted interest rates, was a mechanism for debt reduction for the U.S., for the U.K., for Canada, for France. For, so it was across, pretty much across the board after World War II. That kind of, I've called it, I haven't called it it, Ron McKinnon years ago called it financial repression. That kind of modest financial repression is a tool. Mm. Uh, And I think it's a tool that would have 
benefited to have on hand uh, for both Greece and for Puerto Rico, but they don't. Um, but of course, like any tool, if you overdo it, uh, you'll end up with something that is ex extremely damaging and counterproductive. The hyperinflations in Argentina and Brazil and in Germany after World War I, they did indeed wipe out the domestic debt, but they also wiped out the financial sector uh, along with it, and a lot of uh, wiped out you know, your average person's savings uh, as well. Well, uh, Professor Carmen Reinhardt, thank you so much for coming on PolicyCast. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to read more, you can find Professor Reinhardt's white paper titled Sovereign Debt Relief and Its Aftermath. We'll have a link to it in their show notes. Her most recent book is titled This Time is Different, Eight Centuries of Financial Folly, and can be found on Amazon. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Nicole Hernandez at the Boston Globe. And to you, of course, for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter, at PolicyCast.